0: you're listening to the doxology and theology podcast where we promote encourage and equip gospel-centered worship for more information visit us at doxologyandtheology.com i feel uh, a little out of place here and um to help with that someone asked me yesterday what i'm doing here which was really um helpful for my sanctification um (laughs) I did, um, I have as my credibility, I will hold up my merit badge for you as I'm preparing to speak on justification by faith alone. Uh, I led worship for one year and one year only. Uh, This was back in the day when if you were in student ministry, you were a worship leader. Uh, You learned three or four chords and uh, put some songs together. But I'm a child of the 80s and 90s, so um, this was back... um, When uh, our our greatest hits list consisted of things like, I want to zoom around the room. Anyone remember this one? (laughs) Zoom around the room and praise the Lord. It may be time to bring that one back up. Um, We sang uh, Amazing Grace to the tune of Peaceful Easy Feeling. Anybody (laughs) do that? Yes? It was was good times. (laughs) Um, And if I could just offer one sort of bit of of, um, critique for you uh, millennials and your millennial whoops and everything that you've got in your songs… Um, there's one thing I think that's really missing, something that we had in, in my day. Um, you guys could use hand motions, I think, <laughs> right? Boswell, right? There's not a single one of your songs that couldn't be improved with a little goosh, 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 goose, or something like that in there. <laughs> um, vast improvement, innovative to say the least. Uh, if you have a Bible with you, please turn to Romans chapter 4. There, um, there's an abundance of texts that we could choose from, even simply from Paul's letter to the Romans itself to talk about justification by faith alone. Um, I picked somewhat of an unlikely text, but you know every chapter in Romans is in some way hinging on this great article of the faith. Been charged with speaking to you about sola fide, faith alone. Martin Luther said that the doctrine. Of faith alone is the article upon which the church stands or falls. So I'm speaking on the doctrine on which the church stands or falls, and I'm feeling a little bit of pressure. But we're going to lean on the scriptures together. I think that's one of the principles of the doctrine of faith. We're just going to be looking at verses. Uh, whoop, I lost my place here. Verses 13 through 25 of chapter 4. So let's begin reading that. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world. Did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. That is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it's written, I have made you the father of many nations. In the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist, in hope he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations, as he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about a hundred years old Who raised from the dead, Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. This is the word of the Lord. Um, Let's pray. Let's do thank our Heavenly Father for it and ask him to bless our time together. Heavenly Father, we have nothing to offer you except the sin which makes our salvation necessary. And so we um, confess corporately to you now in this time that we are needy of your word, and so I ask that you would restrain me from saying anything that would detract from the great truth of your gospel, and empower me to say anything that might adorn the truth of your gospel, that the word of your Son and his glory would shine through most of all, for we believe that seeing the glory of your Son is how we are transformed. So in this moment, we ask that you would gather us together like your little lambs, and speak the word of comfort into our ears, this message of grace received through the weakness of faith. And it's in your Son's great name that we pray, the name of Christ Jesus. Amen. Now, I want to cover, just with you from this text, um, just three implications of the doctrine of faith alone. But before we do that, I think it's helpful to sort of take a step back I think it's important for a minute to speak simply about faith itself. I want to sort of tease out some principles on just the idea of faith, because I think for so many of us and for so often, um, we bind faith and works together in a way that sometimes obscures what faith really is. You can't separate faith from works, and yet we must distinguish between faith and works. I think one of the problems that people have with the Protestant understanding, the doctrine of sola fide, faith alone, arises from the difficulty of this definition. It's hard to define faith without speaking to works or alluding to works, right? James is, of course, right when he says that faith without works is dead. If you say you have faith and you have no works, you don't really have faith. But faith is not the same thing as works, They are connected and and inextricably tangled, and so it's very difficult to speak of one without speaking of the other. I remember traveling—this will give you some more kind of uh, musical cred for those of you who are concerned about that sort of thing—traveled with a youth musical once based on the songs of the one and only Michael W. Smith, and um, I happened to be the lead in the musical, if you can believe that or not. Um, At the end of each night of our performance, you know, our youth pastor would come up on stage and Um, and present the gospel and give an invitation. And he always used the same illustration um, each night. It was illustration to sort of um, help people understand what it means to put their faith in Christ. And it's probably one that you've heard before, maybe even have used before. It's the wheelbarrow over the Grand Canyon illustration. Anyone heard this one before, right? So imagine there's a tightrope across the Grand Canyon. There's a crowd gathered, a man with a wheelbarrow. He says, how many of you can you know, believe that I can cross the Grand Canyon on the tightrope with this wheelbarrow and come back? And some people say yes, some people say no. Well, he does it with an empty wheelbarrow, right? He walks across the tightrope and comes back. Everyone applauds. He says, now how many of you can you know, believe that I can cross the Grand Canyon with this wheelbarrow, and everyone raises their hand, and he says, who would like to get inside the wheelbarrow? And the point is that you don't really believe, right, until you put your faith in that which you have intellectually assented to. You don't really believe that the man can cross unless you actually get inside the wheelbarrow. But it's a great illustration, but it, again, also illustrates how difficult it is to distinguish or to disentangle faith from works, because getting into the wheelbarrow is a work, is it not? I mean, you're doing something, so how do you talk about faith without um, talking about doing something? Nevertheless, we have to distinguish them. So what is faith? Well, it's, it's belief. Well, what is belief? Well, it's, it's trust, and we just keep kind of moving the vocabulary around. It's, it's, this, it's a disposition, it's a, it's a, a, a preconception, it's, it's some sort of ethereal thing. The Bible talks a lot about faith in a variety of ways, but we really get just one sort of clear definition, and that comes in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. So it's an assurance of something that we hope for, and it's a conviction about something which at the moment is invisible. And this is why I think in our passage here in Romans 4, and really throughout Romans, Paul keeps using this word promise. He believed in the promise. Didn't see it yet, but he believed in it. He put his faith in this promise. So what is faith? I think if we're going to have sort of a good illustration of faith alone, apart from works, It may be helpful to think of faith alone, apart from works, as a kind of emptiness, if you will, if you need something more solid than that, an empty vessel or an empty hand. We must believe in justification by faith alone because only God can justify and only faith is a vehicle empty enough to rest on the infinitude of God. In fact, the more emptiness you bring, the more of the fullness of God you experience. Faith is a disposition of weakness. And so it must have an object. The object of faith may not be God for you. It's not saving if it's not God for you. But people put their faith in all sorts of things. And if you have faith in something, you know, uh, it has to have that something there for it to actually be faith. Faith doesn't exist where it doesn't exist, quote-unquote, in something right so you can have faith in your religion you can have faith in your family you can have faith in yourself but you can't simply have faith I remember a woman in, in um, my church in Vermont once said during a testimony time that um, she confessed that she just needed to trust in her faith more and I thought that, that you know that doesn't make sense I have faith in my faith I'm gonna place my weakness into my weakness like, like that doesn't it doesn't make any sense Now, I know that defining faith this way as sort of a disposition of weakness sounds strange since faith alone is the article that Luther says on which the church is said to stand or fall. I'm essentially saying that the article on which the church stands or falls is the one about weakness. But biblically speaking, it doesn't make any sense intuitively, fleshly, naturally, but biblically it makes total sense, especially if you believe, as the Bible teaches, that his strength is made perfect in our weakness. So I think this is okay. It's okay to say that faith is weakness, it is emptiness, because what we believe is that grace brings the strength, and faith brings the reliance on that strength. And this is the essence of Christianity. This is how the negotiating table works in the great exchange of righteousness for sin. We are saved by grace, received through faith. It's not of ourselves. So when you come to that bargaining table that Christ Jesus is seated at, don't bring anything in your hand. In fact, if you were to sort of dredge up thinking, the righteousness of Christ is so costly, I must bring every currency that I can think of, all of your righteousness, all of your accomplishments, all of your virtue, all of your good intentions, the more of that stuff you bring to the table the cheaper you make the righteousness of Christ. But even if you were to bring a penny, just a a, a half a penny of righteousness to that table, the deal would be off. The message of the gospel is this. You bring your empty hand, you bring your nothingness, and Jesus Christ will give you everything. All of himself. The fullness of him for the emptiness of you. And this leads to our first point about faith alone. Faith alone justifies, not works. Faith alone justifies, not works. Now, the law of God is good. Sometimes the way Paul talks about the law, you can get the impression that it's not good. But essentially what Paul is saying is that the law is good for what it's designed to do, and it's not good for what it's not designed to do. The law is only good for what it is designed to do. It shows us what to do, yes, and simultaneously it reveals that we cannot do that perfectly. And this is what Paul is going on about in every one of his letters. In 2 Corinthians chapter 3, he talks about the glory of the law, and he says the glory of the law is fading, and the glory of the gospel is so much better and brighter. He's doing a compare and contrast. He's not saying the law is bad. He's simply saying grace is better. This is how he puts it here. Verse 13, for the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For it's the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs. Faith is null and the promise is void. The law brings wrath. The very thing that tells you what to do condemns you for not doing it. Verse 16, this is why it depends on faith in order that the promise may rest on grace, on the work of God in Christ, on the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And if it rests there, it's guaranteed to all of his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, those raised in the tradition of the law, but anyone who exercises saving faith, belief in the promise. And anyone who does that is a child of Abraham. The law tells us what to do and shows us that we can't do it at the same time. If we're going to be saved, it must be by grace. We have no hope otherwise. This is how I know that Christianity is true, at least one of the reasons why I know Christianity is true. We would not have made this up. This makes too little of us. And this is why this message of grace is only found in Christianity. Every other religion and philosophy in the world has some variation of measurement of steps of commandment following do these things and you will receive the glory the enlightenment fulfillment heaven whatever it is in every other religion and philosophy in the world man is in the gutter looking up at heaven wondering how do i get up there only in christianity does heaven come down to the gutter we wouldn't have invented this Paul says the law brings wrath, and so to seek justification in the law is to heap wrath upon yourself. You think you're piling on the righteousness, you're really piling on the wrath. It is grace that brings the rescue of the righteousness of Christ. I'm sometimes asked why I I have a lot of, um, I guess I can use the word hostility, uh, just sort of animosity or just critique for the attractional paradigm. And aside from the fact that the, the attractional movement, which is, kind of grew up out of the church growth, seeker sensitive movement, all that sort of thing, aside from the fact that the attractional ideology, right, uh, it, it founded on moralism, pragmatism, consumerism, aside from the fact that those things are completely antithetical to biblical ecclesiology, Aside from that, it's because moralism, pragmatism, and consumerism are, at their essence, legal ideologies. They are kinds of legalisms. And I'm not one who embraced the gospel center thing because it was newer and neater. I was trained for ministry, I was raised in the attractional movement. I, I was trained for ministry in that movement. I served in churches, small, medium, and large, within that movement. I was a true believer. But there came a point in my life where I collapsed in on myself. The the scaffolding of my performance, of my gifts, of my talent, of my intellect, all of that began to crumble. And my life started to fall apart. My marriage was broken. My soul was broken. A period of depression set in. And I spent almost two years thinking, maybe I should just kill myself. And I remember in that period, I was living in the guest bedroom of, of our home, and I just spent a lot of nights just crying and praying. And, you know, sometimes, like, when you can't, I mean, I know what it means when it says, like, the Spirit prays for us, groaning's too deep for words, like, when you just can't even get sentences out. Sometimes my prayers are just one word over and over and over again, sometimes it's just the word, please, please. And at that time, I had notebooks full of practical helps and steps and tips, all good things, things that are based in the Bible. But it was notebooks full of instructions, and not a single one of them helped me. I couldn't muster up the power to fix what was going on in my life. And just one night... In God's kindness, he reached into that guest bedroom. I was face down on the floor, and he grabbed hold of me, and he spoke into my heart the words, I love you, and I approve of you, and it changed everything. This is why I'm so fired up about the message of grace, and I don't mean to negate the law. I simply mean to put it in its proper seat. And make sure that people understand that it's the glory of Christ that changes people. Paul says in Titus, it's grace that trains us to renounce unrighteousness. We would think it would be the law that trains us. But Paul says it's grace that trains us. Again, in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, he says it's by beholding the glory of Christ that we are transformed. Don't we want our people to be changed? To be transformed? To be made into the image of Christ? To follow in Christ's likeness? To obey God? We want them to obey God? Paul says it's by beholding the glory of Christ. So in my mind, the goal of corporate worship, at least, at the very least, if not the goal of the Christian life every day, is to make sure people see as much of the glory of Christ as possible. And it makes no sense to me to save it for special occasions. When you come to the end of your rope and people are going to walk in on Sunday morning, at the end of their rope, they meet Jesus there. Justification by faith alone apart from works is a doctrine so precious, brothers and sisters, because it also helps us to remember that it's not a strong faith that saves us, but a strong Savior. I think of the moment where Jairus comes to Jesus and very boldly, I think because of his position, he's used to, to feeling confident, his authority, his authority his respectability, and he just comes straight to Jesus and says, my daughter is dying, and you must heal her. I know you can, and I want you to heal my daughter. And so Jesus turns to go with this man to heal his daughter. But do you remember in, in, in that crowd, in the, in the push of the crowd, while he's leaving to go heal this little girl, a woman with a, a bleeding issue, 12 years she's been bleeding, she reaches out and grabs hold of Jesus' cloak. And she's instantly healed. And Jesus turns around, and you think for a moment he's perturbed because he says he felt power go out of him. And the text says that the woman comes to him in fear and trembling. And Jesus says to her, your faith has made you well. Now, Jairus' daughter, in the meantime, she passes away, but Jesus still goes and raises her. Now, you have in this one episode two healings. Two healings corresponding to faith. Jesus is commending the faith of the Father. He's commending the faith of this woman with the bleeding issue. But there's two different measures of faith there. Jairus came believing. I know Jesus can heal, and I believe he will heal, and so I'm going to ask him. The woman believed that Jesus could heal, but she wasn't quite sure that he would if if she asked him. It It was a little faith, but they both received the healing. They both received the healing. As the great hymn writer Augustus Toplady said, a feeble hand may lay hold of a strong Christ. And this is why Jesus says, if you have faith of a mustard seed, you could say to this mountain, fall into the sea, and it will. You can have the tiniest, most beat up and battered, torn and tattered, meek faith, but if it's true faith, it merits you all of the eternal riches of Christ Jesus, same as if you had a strong faith, because there is no justification 2.0. It is, in fact, when you feel the worst, when you're at your worst, that the gospel is most suited to work. And this is one reason I think Jesus hits it off so well with the poor and the sick and the lepers and the prostitutes and the half-breeds. Not simply because he likes to do ministry in the margins, although that's true, but because they have nothing to offer. They have no cultural currency. They have no religious currency. And so they were most primed to see the glory of Christ and want the glory of Christ. Blessed are the poor in spirit. So faith is an ownership of emptiness, of weakness, and faith that justifies is the ownership of emptiness in the form of a repentant confession of sin and a convicted embrace of Christ's finished work. So you can have faith alone tucked away into your doctrinal statement, but if the regular exercise of your worship emphasizes law, you are only compounding the problem that you mean to solve. You're actually making people worse, because even if they leave feeling positive and upbeat with lots of stuff to do, if you remove the gospel from the whole dynamic, they're simply puffed up in self-righteousness. The best you can manage with that is well behaved pagans. It is faith alone that justifies, not works. Secondly, faith alone perseveres, not sight. Faith alone perseveres, not sight. I think this truth is going to become more and more important in the days ahead. I don't know what the Lord has planned for his church, but it doesn't seem as if Christianity is going to become more comfortable, more culturally acceptable. So, maybe we're going to continue to see the decline of cultural Christianity, of nominalism. Over the next 10 to 20 years, it may have a huge impact on our ability to, quote unquote, do church the way we have done it for the last 10 to 20 years. And so, it may be good to begin realizing that Americanized evangelicalism is not normal. It's not normal. But just simply in the day-to-day, week-to-week life of our churches and ministries, we're still tempted constantly, as Abraham was, to measure our progress according to externals. And it's really strange because the same preachers and worship leaders who constantly on Sundays encourage their flocks not to judge their identity by their circumstances will then retreat on Mondays and Tuesdays into their staff meetings and begin to judge the church's worthiness based on circumstances. This is law mode. I'm not saying don't count. I'm not saying don't care about growth and that sort of thing. I'm saying where is your heart set? Where is your vindication, your justification, your validation? What are you trusting to help you persevere, especially when times are lean? And if you're set on this law mode, all you become is someone who walks around measuring other people. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, in his great little book, Life Together, talks about the wish stream. It's one of the most helpful passages in a book outside of Scripture that I've ever read, especially for life and ministry. The wish stream. Bonhoeffer says the wish stream is the thing that frustrates real community because the wish stream is the vision for the church that you want. And pastors, worship leaders ministry workers, they have this vision for the church they want, and so they're always comparing the church they have to the church they want. And newsflash, the church you have will never measure up to the church you want. Also, just to clue you in, congregations have wish-dream worship leaders too (laughs) and wish-dream pastors and so constantly measuring, and Bonhoeffer says, when you're set on the wish stream, like it's good, you want your church to be going somewhere, you have a vision for them, but Bonhoeffer says, to have that wish stream, to be set on that wish stream, it frustrates real community, it prevents you from actually loving people because you're always measuring them. They'll never measure up, and so if you find it more and more difficult to actually love them. This is not how God and Christ treated us. The gospel of justification by faith cannot make us into little judges of each other's ministerial output. It cannot make us people who keep sizing each other up, measuring each other, rehearsing each other's failings. The gospel is not tuned to the frequency of accusation. But when we're constantly focused on externals, on metrics, if you will, it's easy to slip into law mode, and it's easy also to become lackadaisical about the promise of grace, the things that you haven't seen yet the true things, the real things. So where do your thoughts go when attendance is down? Where do your thoughts go when the giving is down? Where does your heart go when the worship sets aren't quite as satisfying as they used to be, when things start to feel a little old, a little stale? You creatives, I I, I know it's like you have this itch to constantly reinvent, to, to create something new, to go to the next level, whatever it is. And that's a good thing that God has given you, but if you're tying your perseverance to that, that's a shaky foundation. What do you do when you get that itch for something newer, shinier, bigger, or better? This is what Paul says about Abraham, verse 19. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old, or even when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. You know, I have the opportunity to travel and, and, and go into a lot of churches, a lot, a lot of churches, and sometimes I wonder, like, where do they put the old people? Where do the old people go? And <laughs> like sometimes some I wonder, like, is it like when you come in with kids and they whisk the kids away, is there, like, the old folks' chill zone that you take, They're like, Grandpa, come with us, we have a room just for you, you know, kind of thing. Things very comfortable there. Tomorrow morning, my family is going to be presented as members um, of Liberty Baptist Church in Northeast Kansas City. Every time they present new members um, as part of the presentation, they name something. They you know they interview the family as part of the presentation to ask like, what was you know something that um, you know appealed to you about our church? Why you know why did you choose our church? So they can share that as a means of encouragement with the church family. And so I was you know sending some things back to the fellow who's going to you know present to us and. You know, of course, there were things for us that were non-negotiables, you know, gospel-centered preaching, biblical exposition, healthy church membership, all that sort of thing. But then there were some things that were preferential for us, and one of those was there's, there's old people there. There's multiple generations there. I want my kids, I want my family to be in as diverse a community as possible, and that includes diversity of generations. We need the wisdom of our elders, but we also need this. Because the evangelical church in the West, like the culture it's trying to reach, idolizes youthfulness. We need to regularly worship with hair that is gray and white. We need to see those wrinkled hands holding those bulletins. Prayer requests and journals with the shaky handwriting. We need to see walkers and canes and oxygen tanks. It's a reminder that what we see doesn't last. It's like incarnation of Ecclesiastes. 2 Corinthians 5, 7, Paul says, For we walk by faith, not by sight. Our trust is not in our strength. It's not in our gifts. It's not in our talent. It's not in our attendance. It's not in our budget. It's not even in our good gospel fruit. Our trust is in Christ alone. No unbelief made Abraham, verse 20, made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith. This assumes that his faith was not as strong in the beginning. He grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. We are not materialists, brothers and sisters. I think we even have to be careful with some of the apologetic arguments that we make to adorn the gospel message. This whole faith alone, faith in works thing is somewhat complicated also by the reality that faith must be true faith, actual conviction, right? So as Paul says here, he was fully convinced. What does that mean to be fully convinced? Well, it's not just merely intellectual assent. That's the problem I have with the recent argument, at least one of the problems I have with the recent argument about what the Bible says. Can we say the Bible says in our preaching and teaching? Can you say the Bible says? I think this tracks with some of those apologetic considerations where we have a strange emphasis on the historicity of the resurrection over the biblical revelation of the resurrection, which I think is odd. And this conversation has largely missed one very important factor. Christianity is supernatural. I think, especially in the days ahead, we need a good, bold, confident, and yet humble reclamation of the supernaturality of Christianity. Christianity. In other words, nobody was ever argued into the kingdom. The gospel itself is power. Holy Spirit working through the message of Jesus Christ. Historical considerations by themselves do not save. The gospel message from the Word of God has the power to save. And so it's possible for someone to believe that Jesus was raised from the dead because the historical evidence leads him there and yet not be saved at all because he hasn't put his trust in that event. It belongs to history, but not to himself. And the gospel is not less than historical. It is a historical event. Jesus really did live. He really did die. He really did rise again. But it's not simply enough to believe that Jesus died. You have to believe that Jesus died for you. Even the demons believe. But they're no closer to being saved. And this is why faith includes intellectual assent. Our faith is not irrational. It's not unreasonable. It's not a blind faith. But faith is more than intellectual assent. It is personal trust. And I know that might sound like I'm slicing the garlic really thin here. Our faith must be real faith, real trust, and here's the problem with that. The problem with this, of course, is that any faith we generate ourselves is never truly alone. Any faith we muster up is tainted with self-interest, interwoven with self-righteousness, overshadowed by self-exaltation. Well, glory to God that one of the gifts of his marvelous grace is the very faith that we need to receive his grace. Saving faith is given, what a gracious God we have, that he would say, hey, without faith it's impossible to please me, here, have some faith. <laughs> I don't know if you believe this stuff or not, but it's, it's there in the Bible, 2 Peter chapter 1 verse 1 says that the righteousness of God ha, um, comes through faith that we've obtained. We obtained faith. Philippians 1.29 speaks of belief in Christ being granted to people. It's been granted to you to believe in Christ. And, of course, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 speaks of grace and faith together being the gift of God. You didn't come up with that faith yourself. He gave you that faith that you needed to receive His grace. Or verse 17 here, if you like. He gives life to the dead. And He calls into existence the things that do not exist. That includes saving faith. What a glorious God we serve. What a gracious God who gives what he demands. So faith alone justifies, not works. Faith alone perseveres, not sight. Thirdly and finally, faith alone vindicates, not success. Faith alone vindicates, not success. How will you know if you've arrived? Like, if you're in ministry, you have benchmarks, you have goals. By God's grace, you reach them, then what? I heard from a woman this week who serves on a creative team, large church. Um, she said she just feels extremely discouraged because every week, every month, the, the goal is bigger, better. How do we outdo what we did last week? And so the pressure is so enormous And she says, I don't, I I didn't know this was what church life was supposed to be like. I think this is why we have increasing craziness in worship services in the West, stunts and gimmicks and giveaways. But even if you can't afford those things, like you may say, well, well, we never do that. We don't have dirt bikes over the stage and all that kind of thing. Maybe, and if you do, don't do that. That's really stupid. Don't do that. But, But you probably don't, right? Even if you don't do that, this is why your identity is still so often tied to your position. And your security is so often tied to people's affirmation of that position. Brothers and sisters, the Lord has not called you to be successful. He's called you to be faithful. Verse 23, but the words, it was counted to him, were not written for his sake alone. Oh, thank God, but for ours also. This is what Tripp was talking about last night. Counted to him, the imputation of the righteousness of Christ. Counted to your account, credited to your account. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. This is the hope we are assured of and the thing not yet seen that we have a conviction about. Our hope and our conviction cannot be in our performance. One thing I appreciate about that hall of faith chapter, Hebrews chapter 11, which begins with that definition of what faith is, begins to list the heroic exploits of the patriarchs and people of old. But it doesn't just include the successes of the biblical heroes, but also their defeats. All right? You have, to, you have to go deep into the chapter to get there, but it's not just a catalog of strengths tucked down at the end of Hebrews 11. Some were tortured refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging, even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth, and all these were commended through their faith. I mean, that's real life. Do not trust your vindication to your legacy. When I served um, this little church in Vermont, rural church, town of about 700 people, was there six years. I had in my, in my study, there's a, the, the church sort of archives. There's a big filing cabinet, essentially, with a lock on it. And inside were all of the documents that the church had kept dating back. It's a historic church, started in 1788. So these documents, like, they just went way back, some of them were like falling apart. And I would pull these things out and look through them, and I wish that there had been more about the life of the church, like journaling. It was essentially like a list of meetings, who was at what meeting, just a list of names, all these names. I didn't have a clue who any of them were. And every time I would look at that filing cabinet or pull out one of those books, one of these days my name is going to be in one of these little books in some dusty cabinet covered with mouse dropping. Is that going to be all right? Don't trust your vindication to your accomplishments, to your good works. Your great-great-grandchildren will have zero clue who you are. That's how quick it's coming. But the Lord knows your name. So the law is a double-edged sword. What you add up to justify you only sets up the standard for your condemnation. You want to add up your achievements? Do you realize that adding up your achievements is simply building a Babel Tower primed for collapse? And you think you're going to carry that like a glorious little file, your resume into heaven? Brothers and sisters, be honest with yourself here. Of all the things you could list in your good column, think of all of the things. All of the things that speak against you. How many times in your heart have you boasted or gloried in numbers and dollars? How many times have you gloried in appearances and assumptions, worried about how you looked? How many times have you neglected orphans and widows? How many times have you failed to lead decisively? How many times have you avoided conflict or caused it unnecessarily? How many times have you phoned in a worship set or treated it like a performance? How many times have you sacrificed your family on the altar of ministry or ministry on the altar of family? How many times have you compared yourself favorably to other team members or to the church across the way? How many times have you avoided people you thought were not worthy of your time? How many times have you engaged in ministry simply for the paycheck, not for love of the flock? How many times have you resented someone's valid correction or criticism of your mistakes or missteps and you hated them in your heart and you gave rein to bitterness against them? How many times have you bristled because you consider yourself above critique or challenge? How many times have you envied the church across the way for their better resources or their high attendance or their bigger building or their nicer stage? How many times have you measured your church against another's? How many times have you been disgruntled in your heart over your people for being too lazy or being too radical or too something else in between that makes you uncomfortable? How many times have you frittered working time away on social media? How many times under stress and exhaustion have you clicked where you shouldn't or engaged in lust or flirted with temptation, perhaps even with another team member at church? How many times have you failed to confess your sins to one another and be held accountable? How many times have you failed to seek help? or to seek sharpening, or to be held accountable? How many times have you failed to seek counseling? How many times have you chased countless poisonous idols of approval and validation? How many times under the weight of the church leader's task have you given into laziness or greed or pride? Honestly, over and over and over again. And you're going to stand before a holy God on the last day. And you're going to look up at him. And you, you know what he's going to say to you? Justified. Justified. Faith alone is your justification. Faith alone is your perseverance. Faith alone is your vindication on the last day. These heroes in Hebrews chapter 11, Abraham included, a lot of them were dirtbags a lot of the time. This is one of the strange benefits of expository preaching, I think, because we don't cherry-pick all the highlights, but our people get to see These people that God praises in all of their warts and flaws. This occurred to me preaching in 1 Peter chapter 3, where Peter says that godly women are daughters of Sarah if they don't fear anything. And I thought, Sarah was afraid all the freaking time. Can I say that? Okay. All the time. And here Peter was holding her up like some kind of paragon of fearlessness. And same with Hebrews 11. Utter sinners. Same with Abraham. And yet here Paul is saying, ah, he never wavered. How is that possible? He wavered a lot. We see it right there. Does the Bible contradict itself? No, it's the revisionist history of the gospel. He had the righteousness of Christ applied to him. Christ never wavered, therefore, he never wavered. That's you, brothers and sisters. Sins are forgiven. Past is forgotten. And your faith, your weakness offered up to Christ vindicates us in the end. I'll finish with this. We saw a lot of people tragically pass away. Um, my last pastorate, buried friends, not just people in the church that I love, but friends who were close to me. Young people, old people. And the last one, the last one that I buried was one of my good friends named Natalie. She was an older sister, late 60s, pancreatic cancer, triggered on an Easter Sunday to go to the doctor because someone noticed yellow in her eyes. Said, yeah, you got some yellow in your eyes on so Easter Sunday morning. She went to the doctor the next week, that led to an uh, investigation of uh, uh, her liver and things like that. And while they were inside trying to find out if it was a bile duct issue or something, they discovered these tumors. They gave her just a couple of months. She lasted about six months. And towards the end, I mean, she was healthy for late 60s. She wasn't unhealthy. She walked every day, ate well. And so she was thin already. And I watched this lady become a skeleton and I would go see her multiple times a week and read scripture to her and pray with her and I remember one day I was sitting there with her by her bedside they'd set up hospice in a friend's um, guest house and so she was living there and she was mentioning all these cards people had brought cards I mean when people are are dying you know people want to tell you how much they how much you mean to them and that sort of thing so she had all these cards and letters And she said, people and all these things, they keep telling me all these great things I've done and how good I am. And I wish you'd just take all those things away. Jared, just take all those things away. I said, why would I take this stuff away? She goes, they don't know the truth about me. (laughs) Well, Natalie was a really good person. And she really helped a lot of people. And she really served and she really loved. But she knew she couldn't take those cards and letters into heaven that they would not commend her to Christ. She knew it was her and the righteousness of Jesus, that all she had was Christ. You know, they found on Luther's corpse a scrap of paper. On that scrap of paper, it said, we are beggars, this is true. But friends, if we'll own that, the truth that we are beggars, we will be the richest people in the world. Or verse 13, heirs, heirs, of the world. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are so sweet to us, so beyond what we can imagine and certainly beyond what we deserve. So I thank you from beginning to end that salvation is all of grace. That you foreknew us. And because you foreknew us, you called us. And because you called us, you justified us. And because you have justified us, you will sanctify us. And because you are sanctifying us, you will glorify us. And I thank you, Father, that this is not in jeopardy. That you have said past tense, we have been raised with Christ and seated with him in the heavenly places. That we are hidden with him in you. Father, I pray that you would press this truth, this precious truth, into the hearts of these precious children of yours, that we would not for a second waver from the reality that what people need is good news. Help us to believe, Father, we believe, we ask you to help our unbelief, that the message you've given us and the message we're to give others is not primarily get to work, but it is finished. And it's in your son's precious name that we pray, the name above all names, Jesus Christ. Amen.